Hello, and welcome to another episode of Root for Each Other, a Branches podcast, where we take a meaningful look at the dynamics of domestic violence and how trauma-informed, inclusive advocacy can make a difference. The opinions on this podcast are ours individually and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Branches. And welcome to another episode of Root for Each Other, a Branches podcast. Shannon here, and I am here with Sarah. Hi, everybody. And we have a very, very special guest, a uh, dear friend and colleague of ours, somebody we've been wanting to have on the podcast for quite some time. She's a very busy woman, but a fantastic advocate, fantastic uh, role model, and her name is Katie Spriggs. Katie is the executive director of the Eastern Panhandle Empowerment Center, or EPIC, uh, which is one of our sister programs over in the Eastern Panhandle. Hey, Katie. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I've been following the podcast all these years or months that you've done it, and I'm excited that I made it on. Well, thank you. That's so kind of you to say. And we, of course, are always following your program. Uh, we love what you guys do over there. And also, I know just as an executive director, you are incredibly busy. <laughs> so we appreciate you taking your time. And yeah. of course, we also uh, wanted to have you on the, this particular episode, which is going to take a look at the victimization of human trafficking. We especially wanted to um, have you for this one because you have so much expertise and advocacy for human trafficking victims. And also, I'll just be honest, I learned a lot of what I know and about how to um, be an advocate from you, Katie. So we're so glad to have you here to be able to talk with us about that or have a conversation about that. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I've been around in the advocacy field, either as an advocate in the beginning of my career up and then I did some middle management and then as a director for seven years now in as watching the state's advocacy specifically response to human trafficking grow where in the beginning you know 2012 when I first started it wasn't even a word anybody said we didn't have it in our mission statements we did like nobody was doing it um to now where we have full-fledged subcommittees that focus on advocacy Mm -hmm. yeah I mean that's I'm glad you pointed that out I mean it truly it is something that we have added to our mission statements, to you know any literature that we put out. And it's not that we weren't providing those services before, but they weren't necessarily identified. I think there's still not a great understanding of what human trafficking actually is, what it looks like in, in our area. Yeah, for I, sure. I think that has remained, that was a difficulty up front, like when we first started this sort of movement into human trafficking and I think it remains a difficulty but like maybe a little bit of a more nuanced difficulty now so we might identify it but then we got to really think through is it like legally not trafficking is this just behaviorally you know trafficking so I think we're doing better but um yeah just defining it and naming it has 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 been a struggle across the board absolutely so on that subject I think it's a great idea to just provide a little pressure for our listeners. When we use the phrase human trafficking, what exactly are we talking about? 
Sure. Yeah. So most of the time when we use the phrase human trafficking, we're looking at the two major types, sex and labor. So sex trafficking and labor trafficking. Um, and I think back to Shannon's point of just like naming it, I think now in 2024, we're doing a better job of naming sex trafficking, um, particularly when you talk about like advocacy services in West Virginia. But I think we all are still struggling to name labor trafficking or identify it fully, do really mm -hmm. dedicated outreach, um, understand who we even reach out to at this point. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, I think when we say human trafficking, we're most often talking about the big two types, sex and labor trafficking. So we've been serving both um, since we started serving victims of human trafficking, which for Epic was like 2015, 14, 15. And then I think we finally integrated it into the mission in like 2016. Um, but we've been doing both and outreach has remained difficult, honestly, to both populations, but mm -hmm. um, particularly the labor trafficking population. And interesting, it's interesting because although I knew that um, standalone programs served one or the other, I never thought about um, how you might do outreach differently, depending on which one that you that you were doing outreach to. So I would love to hear if you've done specific outreach to labor trafficking communities. We have never figured out how to do it really well. <laughs> Well, I would say that you're not alone in that boat. <laughs> I would say that probably what we have done is try to improve um, access to information about it. We have really focused a lot on uh, what to do if you make a referral for a human trafficking victim because those lines are so confusing. But um, our colleague Amber created like a graphic that, that says exactly where or who to call um, depending what type of trafficking the victim is experiencing. So we have done a lot in, in regard to that. But in in terms of outreach, we still find that to be like still a pretty tough nut to crack. Yeah, I agree. We're in the same, we're in the same field. And we definitely see labor trafficking popping up, particularly in like architecture and agriculture and door-to-door mm -hmm. -door sales. And there's this, this whole like, I guess, Airbnb and Verbo trend uh, with house cleaning that's becoming more and more common. So um, just trying, I think, to, to wrap my mind around where it's even happening in our community can be difficult. But again, like I just want to highlight, this is such an important milestone to note that this is the conversation we're having instead of, does it happen in West Virginia? What's human trafficking? Oh, like, yeah, that's, that's a great point. The yeah, like we've come a long way since the, I remember the first human trafficking task force meeting ever in West Virginia, which by the way, to give you some history, was born out in the US Attorney's Office out of the um, civil rights, there was a civil rights task force. I don't even know if that still exists, but the human trafficking task force was like the the daughter of that task force and it like existed underneath of it for a little while until it became its own thing. And it was at the coalition's old office in Elkview. And Pippa, who's the former director of Epic was there. This was God, like 2015 probably. and. Um, the, there were some federal um, government employees there that were talking about a labor trafficking bus that they had just done. It was like the first one in West Virginia. And um, they were talking about that. There, I think they had like four potential victims. And when they told the story, as they were telling it, I could just tell that they had no idea what to do with the victims. And so I asked, where yeah. were the victims through all of this? And they said, what will forever go down in my mind is one of the most terrifying things to ever be said in the meeting. They were like, well, we didn't really have anything to do with them. So we just 
put them in holding cells. Mm. And I was like, oh no, oh no. And Pippa and I on the drive to Charleston had been talking about if this was something, if this meeting was something that we had the capacity to keep going to because it's in Charleston and it's so far. And um, yeah. we decided in that moment that we would have to keep going um, because <laughs> that sure. was not acceptable. Um, I, I'm sure that felt like the decision was made for you in that moment. Yeah, yeah. We kind of just looked at each other like, okay, well, this is the meeting we're going to be going to. Um, <laughs> and it's obviously gotten so much better since then. And I'm not even, you know, talking, saying anything bad about the the federal agents. They had no resources to work with. They did their best. Really? But um, yeah, we've come a long way. That was the first meeting I, ever. I'll never forget it. I really love that you shared that story, Katie. And I also want to circle back to something else you said to just make this point real quick. You said, oh, now we're starting to see things like um, Airbnb uh, like pop up and those kind of things. And I think that is such a really important point to make. Ever 10 years ago, we wouldn't be using the phrase Airbnb either. So human trafficking is evolving in mm-hmm. the same way that everything else is evolving. And I think that makes it even more important that we as advocate kind of catch up, right? Like, like we have to stay on top of this because it is going to evolve as a victimization in the same way that stalking does or domestic violence does or any other victimization. We talk about all the time how abusers are always finding new ways to cause harm, right? People who cause harm are finding new and innovative ways to cause harm. So it's exactly the same thing. It's, it's people who are trafficking humans are finding new and innovative ways to do that. So we have to be constantly being innovative as advocates as well. Yeah, for sure. I agree. And I, I 10 years ago, we never would have had text lines where you could text right. in for services. And yeah, so I think keeping services adapting just like mobile advocacy services. Who remembers that hill that we had to climb that I feel oh, yeah. like we still sometimes climb? This like revolutionary idea that the advocate should be where the victim is um, mm-hmm. at the convenience of the survivor. Um, I, so I think, yeah, I think it has to keep evolving. And I think as we learn more about the context in which human trafficking lives, um, the better we'll be able to provide services, which I think is, um, again, my my default. If anyone's ever heard me talk for any length of time, uh, particularly in the capital, my default is always, if we don't know, we should probably just ask the survivors. So yes. I kind of default to that around human trafficking too, is if we don't know, if it feels like a mystery, we should probably just ask them, right? <laughs> and they'll tell I, us um, about their experience and, and what we should know. Absolutely. So um, I want to say, I really appreciate us just kind of going through and doing that little refresher about what it is and what it looks like. I want to move into having a conversation about something, Katie, that I know you and I both are super passionate about. Um, I'm just going to ask in general, open discussion, how important do you think is to understand intersectionality when it comes to addressing human trafficking? Yeah, that's a great question. And you're right. We share um, board membership of the new uh, domestic violence uh, culturally specific program. So let's give that a shout out. Shoulder yeah. To shoulder. Um, shoulder to shoulder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's really, I think you can't do it well if you don't um, do it with an intersectional lens, uh, providing services, providing intervention, 
providing a crisis response, like none of that can happen um, in a fully functional way if you don't see the person as a whole picture, which is essentially what intersectionality is, right? Is seeing totally. all of the things that intersect with this person that have led them to this point in time where they're experiencing this thing and they're having this reaction to it. So I think it's it's cannot be understated how important it is. I think advocates do a disservice to survivors if they don't look at it through that lens. And when we say through an intersectional lens, we literally just mean, for anybody who doesn't know, just mean looking at all of the experiences of this person and how those experiences affect them. So, uh, you know, human trafficking survivor who is an individual of color and who maybe identifies as non-binary and who maybe grew up in, you know, Appalachia would have a different experience than someone who was none of those things and was other things. People can be targeted because of some of their vulnerabilities that are, you know, intersectional. Mm -hmm. So absolutely, uh, again, not to, you know, belabor a point, but it is, you can't really provide the service if you don't see the whole person. And I think absolutely. that's- really important. I think one of the most important things to keep in mind with an intersectional approach is that different experiences, people with different experiences have different approaches and comfortability with service providers as well. So there may be certain experiences, coexisting experiences that make it doubly hard to reach a survivor as a service provider because they have those um, experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and some, I mean, cultures are, or even regions are taught are like you from birth to, to curve inward. Like when there's a trauma, yeah. when there's something that happens, mm. they're t- turn inward to their family, to their culture, to their people. And if the people are the ones causing harm, having right. been taught that your whole life can be really hard to like turn out of your people or to mm-hmm. consider someone else your people. Mm-hmm. That can be really hard. And I think it, we d- we'll often as advocates will think oh well they just don't want to help or you know oh, I guess that that's their decision and it, it you again that is not that's a little bit of a jump if you don't take a second to fully understand the whole person and their yeah. whole experience yeah and there are ways that- to infiltrate that you just have to do the hard work yes I will say um another thing that is complicated just to speak specifically about labor trafficking um one of the things that I'm very passionate about is um, people who have the experience of poverty and labor trafficking. It can be very, very difficult to reach a survivor who has experienced labor trafficking if they feel that they're um, it's like a shared trauma. Right. They'll say, like, yes, this person did this to me, but they had it hard too, and we're all poor and we were in it together. And it can be very hard to um, actually even help them understand that it is a something that's been done to them yeah and that that's the same person that helped them move the last three times they yes. had to move and that's the same mm. person that changes their oil and that's so like wh- then what wow. <laughs> then who, who does all yeah. these other things for them right yeah. um i went to the national sexual assault conference in uh, california this year and i went to a session that was kind of revolutionary. The first thing they got me with was it was this tiny little um, anti-domestic violence organization that they self-manage, they don't have any, there's no linear organization supervisor. So there's no like managers and advocate. Everybody is on the same managerial level, which was the first thing where I was like, well, tell me how you did that. Um, Yeah. There's only five of them. So that feels a little insurmountable for Epic's 27 (laughs) staff, but um, (laughs) one day. um, And then the second thing that they did that I thought was like sort of revolutionary was in those types of situations. So they were really good at understanding 
domestic violence in the context of community. So like that this person held community mm. with the survivor and that they filled multiple purposes in their life, like their partner, the person that changes their oil, the one that helps them move, like they, they understood that and they did some um, like reunification work and some like community healing work. And we know that in all cases that isn't going to work, right? And we know that in all cases that isn't at best. But when they were talking about their sort of design, I thought, like, I thought about that in multiple ways, domestic violence, human trafficking, like, just this idea that understanding that this person, whether it's a trafficker, an abuser, can can hold multiple roles, and all of those roles are important to survivors. And that if we discount those roles, we're missing something. Like, mm -hmm. I thought that that was really impactful. And I had never seen it presented like that. I thought, it's gonna take an open mind to wrap your mind around it. But once you really do, it's, you kind of get it. Right. And, and it definitely relays for human trafficking, especially mm -hmm. here where we see a lot of traffickers are people's intimate partners before or family. Yeah. yeah. Or neighbor. Yeah. yeah. And their neighbors like their yeah. best friend. Right. Um, and I'm so glad you brought up the point. I think um, it's there's this idea of human trafficking is like, oh, these like scary people are going to come kidnap you in the middle of the night. And that's just not what it looks like the majority of the time. It's not what it looks like here. It's so often uh, an intimate partner or family member, parent, like you said, neighbor. It's somebody who is, you know, woven throughout every part of your life. And to try and extricate yourself from the abusive situation with no support, with no financial support, with no emotional support. Um, we expect a lot of those victims. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to talk about how we as advocates and community members, like what do services look like for sex trafficking, labor trafficking? What, what do services, um, what should we aspire to? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, and I, I know there's been some talk of, so as both of you know, and as people listening might not know, there are kind of, kind of prescribed service models for domestic violence and sexual assault response. So there's the Sexual Assault Survivor Bill of Rights that is now in code in West Virginia. There's like a Title 149, which is law enforcement response to domestic violence. So there's some, there's um, licensure standards for domestic violence programs. So there's some like encoded guidance for mm -hmm. response for these things. So recently there's been a couple of um, just really sort of interested community members who have asked me like, why doesn't something, why doesn't a standards of care exist for human trafficking? And it's like, oh, I don't know. That's a great question. <laughs> yeah. So there has, this conversation has actually come up in my life and in other regions. And to my knowledge, it doesn't exist, uh, at least not in West Virginia yet. Um, I think it could, I think it should. I, I sometimes, don't love standards because I believe in flexibility, but at mm -hmm. times I think there should be kind of a bottom line of just please don't do anything worse than that. Um, but you know, we'll see. Um, I think if we were to make one though, like what should, what would services look like? I think again, I remember with the very first victim of human trafficking that I intersected with that I knew was a survivor. Cause as you said, Shannon, we were definitely doing it before mm -hmm. we called it what it was. We just didn't know. And I remember the mistake, the, the big glaring mistake that I made with her was that I found out that, so she is someone that had been separated without disclosing any of her information, um, separated from her family uh, by the trafficker for a pretty long period of a couple of years. 
And by the time she finally got to Epic and was, you know, seeking our support separate from the trafficker, family had been estranged for years and they were kind of frustrated with her. They didn't really know what was going on, mm. obviously. And as soon as she said, I have family, the, the very inexperienced advocate in me was like, oh, well, there, you could just go live with your family. Like, perfect, perfect. place to go. Not thinking about the fact that this person's entire like identity and just like who they, how they thought of themselves and how they fit in with their family, like all of that had changed in these years that that she had been gone. And I kind of just discounted her experience as a survivor and was like, go back into your family. So I will say one one thing I will say is that we don't do that. (laughs) Um, We don't discount their experiences as a survivor when trying to help them move forward. So I think that's a standard of care is that their experience is all going to be different. Everyone's experience is going to be different, but no matter what it was, you can't just pretend it didn't happen. Like as much yeah. as we kind of want to it, I mean, trauma fundamentally changes who a person is. So I think mm-hmm. we have to help them learn who they are and that's oh. the standard of care. That's such a great point. Mm-hmm. I think there's also an element to that of not just helping them, figure out who they are, but um, allowing the space, making mm-hmm. space for that experience of survival is mm-hmm. um, is hard. And they're not going to find a lot of places in the world that, that will allow them that. So I think advocacy in particular has the responsibility to make space for the experience yeah. of survival. Especially when they're not the easiest person to live with or work with, right? Like, mm-hmm. especially when you know, their initial reaction to anything upsetting is to start yelling or when they you are using a substance or when they, you know, decide that they want to participate in the sale of sex consensually, like they're doing it themselves, right. like, and, and we're empowering them to, to do those things. But yeah, I think they, these are complicated cases. And, and Sarah, you're right. It, they're not going to be accepted and welcome to hold that space in in a lot of places Mm -hmm. that they might seek help. Um, So making sure that advocacy services are a soft place to land is, I think, really important in all of our sister programs. I love the phrase soft place to land. I think that's beautiful. I mean, that's just such a beautiful concept. And one, I don't think if you've not worked in a shelter situation, you don't necessarily understand because you, yeah, you can pull somebody out of a bad situation and expect their circumstances to change overnight, but you can't do any kind of deep emotional work or like you said, figure out who they are on the other side of this trauma. If you don't have a roof over your head, if you don't have food to eat, you know, you have to have a warm bed at night to even be able to get to those places. So I think that's absolutely an unspoken part of advocacy that's really important. Yeah. And just the, it is not, we we say this all the time. This is, this must be said every single day by me at Epic. This is why it's harder to do things the way we do things. This is why it's harder to see each client. I love that. Yeah. As like, this is an example. I'll say that often. This is an example of a time when it's, it would be much easier to just have a reactionary policy in place, right? Like, Oh, no, Mm -hmm. can't do that. But it's much harder to navigate each, each situation as its own response. Um, But it's important that we do. So I think you just need a team of people from the top down that even though it's hard, even when it's hard, 
they're like, okay, like we know this is hard. This is why we do it. And we can do hard things. Like we can do this. This is, it's hard, but we can do it. Um, it doesn't work if members of the team don't think it's worth doing the hard work. It just doesn't. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what advocacy needs at the core is, and I, and when you get a, and when you need a break, like I, this is hard and I can't do the hard thing today. So someone else can, right? Like yeah. when you can step in and out of, of the really hard things, because it is not easy. Certainly and not. I agree. And you're right. If you haven't worked in a shelter, my God, it is its own. It's, I don't <laughs> even know. It should be its own like TV show or something. I'm not sure, but it is its own I... unique situation. <laughs> Years it's, and years ago, when I watched The Wire for the first time and, and oh, never watched The Wire, it's every season is set up from a different perspective. One is the schools, one is the docs, you know, whatever. And I was like, man, I would love to see that episode of The Wire from the DV shelter. Like, oh, there, there's so much at the intersections of every social problem that we have uh, in in. So it it can be the most difficult job in the world, but also one of the most rewarding. Yeah. And you literally never know. You never know what another day is going to bring. Part of the reason I love it. Part of the reason I don't love it. <laughs> yeah. I teach, I teach a victim advocacy course. So there's a fun new course. I teach it at two schools. I teach it at Blue Ridge Community College. And this year I teach it at Shepherd University. And oh, it's wonderful. Course- yeah, it's crazy. Get ready for this. So if you complete the course with, with a C, I think, um, and they get a letter of recommendation from me, they can become a national certified victim advocate through a national advocacy certification process and ACP. Um, and you can only become certified if you go through the class, like it's a whole thing. And it's, we're the only schools in West Virginia offering it. And so this is an interesting thing to teach. So I train a lot. Like I train a lot of advocates in and out Uh of ethic. Training is nothing new, but those are people who like know that they're working in a domestic Mm -hmm. violence. These are people who are like little baby social workers who are thinking about it. Mm -hmm. So it's really, it's a different world teaching them. And I will give them like, they have a case management project and it's a human trafficking survivor and they have to navigate like all the difficult nuances of case management and and how really, really, really hard it is in an under-resourced area like West Virginia. And no, every single time they will come back with, I I would have never thought that it was this hard for someone who is a dreamer. Cause like with the person I give them has DACA status, but you know, no, I didn't know that you couldn't get a job. I didn't know. Like, so it's, it's sometimes wild when teaching the course, how much like how much we know as advocates Uh about resources and navigating them and how much the general people just don't know and you have to think that same thing with survivors like Mm -hmm. back to advocacy standards one of them should be like not expecting people to just know and understanding that sometimes the resources really do fail people like it's astounding Mm -hmm. also um katie i just have to like jump on the bandwagon of talking about the so um, I'm not teaching any class officially, but we I am in charge of all of our social work interns from Marshall University. Um, you know, obviously where we're located, we have a very good relationship with Marshall. And um, I work with all of the interns that come and do their practicum with us. And I saw very, very quickly, this is not a criticism of any anybody, but I saw very, very quickly that students coming in from the programs had zero actual tangible advocacy education zero they, they just wildly unprepared mm-hmm. and so in response to that i created 
a 16 week course, like advocacy course for just for the interns that work with us. And one of the things that have been consistently shocking to me, just it blows my mind how frequently they tell me, I cannot believe how much I'm going to use this in when I want to go into law enforcement. I can't believe yep. how much I'm going to use this. I want to go be a social worker at C with CPS. Like it, it is, it was, it was mind boggling to me how connected DV advocacy, human trafficking adv advocacy, all of it is with just every other social issues happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and do you remember the old phrase mission creep? Remember people used to say yeah. that? Oh, oh yeah. 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 Oh yeah. They so love that. Yep. For the people of the world the uh, we used to hear the term a lot, particularly when writing grants um, that when competing for money that you shouldn't apply for something that's like necessarily outside of your mission because mission creep, you're creeping on other people's mission. Never liked the term then still don't really love it now. Um, but I remember that that's kind of was ingrained in my upbringing as a social worker. And the former director of Epic, Pippa, who now works at Shepherd University in the social work department, she the other day, so she has uh, students, obviously social work students who have to do projects and they have to write, you know, resource lists and all that stuff. And she shot me a text the other day and she was like, you'll find it interesting that all of my students, no matter where they were interning, whether it was in the VA, whether it was the hospital, whether it was law enforcement, whatever, every single one of them referenced being able to send people to Epic. And it was for a variety of reasons, wow. like our actual reasons, right, for existing. There was some mm -hmm. that were like, you can get clothes there, whatever. Um, so she was like, everybody referenced it. And I thought, you know, 10 years ago, that would have been considered that we were mission creeping because we were the reference for lots of other things but now i think it's just considered cumulative like sure the people who come to us are also going to need peer recovery help they're also going to need you know access to life skills and parenting and all of these things that aren't necessarily in our mission but they're definitely related um so again back to our advocacy standards <laughs> i think getting rid of this idea of mission creep and um, understanding that like we're all going to do better if we understand all of the needs that go into survivors recovery. And if, if we can do it all in house, like imagine I want to get a forensic nurse. That's what I want. I want my own. Uh, that would be a dream. Yep. That's on the, that's on the horizon for one of us. We'll share that. We'll be like drive it's up and down the state. It'll be fine. <laughs> it's so funny, Katie, that you should say that because um, I have probably said at least on a dozen episodes and it looks like this is going to be the 13th one that I'm going to say it again. Um, I'm a big believer in um, multi-tiered solutions for multi-tiered problems. You can't mm -hmm. expect that you can solve human trafficking with its own little silo. You've, you've got to be mm -hmm. able to understand that it takes everybody doing the work that they're doing. There is no such thing as mission drift in that way. And honestly, it's that kind of like stay in your lane attitude that it kept us from being able to um, communicate clearly about what human trafficking looks like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And it's that, uh, it's that mentality that kept, that had those victims in a holding cell. Because yes, exactly. We didn't know, nobody knew who to reach out to and nobody knew who did what because it's out of our lane. And yeah, no, I agree. I think we're not going to come up with a statewide or nationwide response to human trafficking if we're stuck afraid of each other's missions. Mm -hmm. I agree. I um I feel like that one of the things that we're kind of dancing around, but we have made kind of clear, is that when it comes to interventions for human trafficking, 
it really, really has a lot to do with the people. And um, I, I feel like West Virginia in particular is particularly um, full of great advocates. We have good advocates here. Mm-hmm. And of course, we have room to grow. We can always get better. But it seems like that one of the things that we're saying is that strong, well-trained advocates make a real difference for human trafficking victims. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I agree. And advocates that are continually trained, um, keep yeah. up with the research and the, you know, you see, and I think people who aren't afraid to be like, oh, did that wrong. Like, right, gonna have to do better. Whoa, that was bad. Um, or, and like going to the innovative sessions at NSAC. I know that's really helpful to me because mm-hmm. it is refreshing sometimes. And I know you guys probably experience this too. When you, when you do a lot of training, like when you conduct a lot of training, it's sometimes refreshing to go to a training and not be any part of it other than an attendee. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that's what I liked about like, I'm just here to learn. I don't have to worry about oh. my session. I don't have to worry about what I'm wearing. Um, <laughs> so I think ongoing tr- uh, and innovative training and education. Like, yeah. um, I train a lot on human trafficking in West Virginia. And some people are like, I only come to your trainings. I'm like, no, please don't. Like, go to other people's too. Because um, that's how I learned that, like, we all should learn um, training. And then, again, Start some survivor focus groups. Start mm. some community forums. What does your community think? What does you know? What do survivors in your area need? We um had just launched just like our first meeting. I think was scheduled for like March seventeenth, twenty twenty. Oof, what a time! Um, <laughs> we were gonna launch host two different survivor focus groups, uh, leadership groups in our community, and we'd even come up with ways to like pay survivors as consultants. It was a good oh, time wow. to be alive. Yeah, that was tabled. Um, and we just started talking about it again um, after, you know, four years later, after mm-hmm. having survived. So maybe we'll circle back to that and we'll be the first state to really pull it off. But um, yeah, can't underestimate how important it is to to ask the people who are affected. Uh, this conversation has been so validating for me, Katie, because I feel like that people in my neck of the woods are so sick to death of me suggesting focus groups. I think I've actually suggested focus groups in the last 10 meetings I've been in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we're just, I, we need to call them something other than like a meeting or something because people are like meeting yeah. out. Focus. They're like, whoa, fun. no, no. <laughs> yeah, like a meeting. Um, yeah, especially if it's Zoom. Oh, you've lost them. Um, yeah. I yeah, just want to put make a flyer. It's like, this is going to be a very safe, very, very safe, low-key, good vibes conversation. <laughs> right. Where you can talk to people, not meet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, Katie, we appreciate your time so much. I have, uh, I think I have one more thing that's worth thinking about. When it comes to helping or advocating for a human trafficking survivor what do you think is the best possible outcome i think the best possible outcome would be that survivor feeling like they came out the other side adequately supported in whatever method that takes so we've also talked a lot i do this i i was asked to do this training um, on uh, complex uh, identity survivors with complex identities navigating like a recent trauma and I was initially asked to do it Shepherd University we talked about them a lot today they must be on my mind but Shepherd University's common reading so I, does Marshall do a common reading each semester do you know what that is so I, they've done not it that I'm aware. I went, 
they've done this since I went there. So I have no idea where it came from, but that would be a good history lesson for us all. But I um, went to a year, private school too, and we did a common reading yeah, like cool? before our freshman year. Yeah. So it's your freshman year. Yeah. Shepard. And everybody takes a first year experience class and everybody during their first year experience class talks about the book, whatever the book is. And everybody gets a copy of the book. It's an actual book. Mm -hmm. And um, this year, this uh, last semester, Shepard's common reading was what we don't know about domestic violence can kill us. So it's a domestic violence book. So they did a That's lot amazing. of yeah, they did a lot of domestic violence education with the students um, all year round. And they asked me to do this training as part of the faculty education around this training around this subject. So this was a training uh, with faculty. And one of the questions when I was doing some research on like just complex trauma in general, one of the things that I really started thinking about was like, how do we as humans know how to ask for help? Like how? Because I was of course looking oh, at wow. all this stuff about like kids, right? So it was like, what mm -hmm. happens to your brain when you ask for help and nobody helps you as a baby, like all that stuff. But then uh -huh. I was like, but wait a minute, like what happens when you ask for help as an adult and no one helps you, right? Like, so then mm -hmm. I was like, wait a minute, how do you ask for help? And this is how I developed a training. I just like go down this rabbit hole. So I was in this, this rabbit hole of how do we ask for help? So I think, and, and that's a question that I asked during that training to the audience is how do you ask for help? And then even better yet, how do you receive help? So like if you're asking for help, either like physical help or mental load help or whatever, how do you then receive it when someone gives it to you? Like, do you yeah. feel indebted to them? Like whatever. So I think if to, to use it under that lens, I would, I would consider it a success if survivors came out on the other end of our help and that's in quotes because help looks different to everyone and they feel like they got what they asked for and they're able to accept it. So I, whatever the help was, right. Whatever. Cause Whenever we talk about this, one of the things that I, you know, talk self-disclosure talk about is that I'm not very good at asking for help and that I often feel extremely indebted to the people who help me. Like I just saw Joyce again. Um, Shannon and I sit on a, a training team throughout the state and mm -hmm. I was set to do one of those trainings last year, whatever. And Joyce covered my training at the last second because I had like a family drama and I couldn't leave and it was a whole thing. I saw her again this week. We did another training together last week. And when I first saw her, I immediately felt like I had to tell her, thank you for covering my training six months ago again. Even though I was, was going to say, like, I remember that. And it was a long time ago. I know. I've told her like 90 times. I've also covered <laughs> so many for her before too. So yeah. it was, um, it was weird, but like, so I reflected on that. So I think I would, I think like that's some sort of self-actualization. It's like the top of the pyramid or whatever, when mm -hmm. you're really able to like, ask for help. You feel comfortable asking for help. You feel comfortable receiving help from the people around you. So I think that's what I would consider like a success is that they got the help that they asked for and they felt good taking the help because we presented it in such a diverse selection of ways mm. that no matter how you receive help or how you ask for help, it was available. So I think that's wow. what I would consider a success because I'm I would be one of the people that have, would have a really hard time asking for it. So if someone was able to like give me help and I received it, I'd be like, you guys did it. Like <laughs> you've done whatever. Um, so I think that's how I would say it. I love that. That's beautiful. I was, I don't think I have an answer to be honest. I was like, what would I say in response to my own question? <laughs> I don't have an I know, answer. It's, it's, you asked a hard one, but yeah, I don't think I would have had a good answer had I not, well, I don't even know if that I would consider it a good answer, but I don't think I would have had an answer had I not just had to do that training a whole bunch of times. At See, now I'm stuck on like, oh, how do I receive help? Uh -huh. I'll be thinking about this for weeks. 
<laughs> I will join you in the rabbit hole. It'll be a whole thing. We'll see you there. But um, you come to Shepherd for the next trading I do, and you're like, yeah, I don't know the answer yet. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I haven't figured it out yet. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, we'll meet back up on the podcast here in several months. Right, we're like, all right, did everyone do collective out? homework? Yeah. Maybe yeah. we should do a whole episode on the various ways people might ask for help. I love that. I'm going to be honest with you. I receive that it. And that's such a great yeah. point because mm -hmm. how people receive help can be taken in so many ways, depending on our, uh, you know, as the advocate or the, the helper in whatever capacity. Mm -hmm. Depending on our background, Ugh. oh yeah, it's no, very complicated. Because then you're dealing with the helper and the helpy. Yes. Yeah, because everybody's got emotions, no matter I, how much we want to pretend we don't. I need to explore this as not only the oldest child, but mm. also the oldest child from Appalachia, like Ooh. oldest daughter. Yeah, oldest oh, daughter from Appalachia with a background of poverty. Like I need, I need to, <laughs> I need to go through the series. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, layered. Like, oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, layered. only daughter. Layered. Yep. And then I don't know who, what kind of family you married into. I married into a. My husband is the only. He grew up in a household of just women. His mom and his sisters. So yeah, that's oh, like wow. its whole own complicated. I mean, it, it helped him in a lot of ways. He's very empathetic, right? Uh -huh. But um, yeah, yeah. But how he receives and gives help is different than like. Yeah, I think we. I think we've started something here. We need to psychoanalyze. <laughs> it's a revolution. <laughs> yeah. We have a new podcast. Honestly, how do you help and how do you receive help? <laughs> and I'm into that. I am so into that. I, I make jokes all the time, though, about I, I married the man that I married because he's the most emotionally aware man I've ever met in my life. Mm -hmm. Like, he he's so emotionally aware. And mm -hmm. so. Yep. That's how you that's receive help. <laughs> the way that I receive help is I don't. <laughs> and, and, Same. The way that I receive help is I joke about being too overwhelmed for six months. And then when people offer to help, I say no. <laughs> so I have to share with you this story. Oh, my gosh. I can't help it. We can cut this out of the podcast if it's not relevant. But um, so Christmas Eve, my husband had to work. And I had our two and a half year old stepdaughter with my, my stepdaughter with me in my Christmas Eve celebration with my family. And I was humbled to my shoes because as I was trying to leave, I had like bags and bags and bags of gifts and stuff, right? And not just gifts, but things like her diapers and all this stuff. And not one, but two, but three people asked if I needed help getting stuff to the car. And I was like, no, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm totally fine. No, I'm good. And I actually kept refusing until my female cousin, is important, just picked up a bunch of stuff and walked out of my car. There you like, go. I'm your female and I was cousin. Like, That's what I would yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, mm -hmm. Yep. I was like, oh, oh, I'm going to say no until the bitter end is what's going to happen. <laughs> like, like to the point that it was embarrassing. Like I was realizing that people were like, it was getting weird. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, your arms you fell off. You're like, I'm yeah. good. I'm good. I got a mouth. I'm good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I can still buckle this toddler into yeah. her car seat. I'm sure it'll be fine. And there's something I think to be said too about how this field attracts people like us. I agree. Like yeah. I feel like a lot of people who work in this field are a lot like us where they'd be like, I help over my dead body. Literally my mm -hmm. dead body. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. 
I think oh, we also and that's what we call burnout kids. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I I think that's one of the things that makes us susceptible to burnout. Mm-hmm. But um I think another thing that is very uh, I notice quite a bit about advocates in general as a profession is that we're not have to credit people. I think mm-hmm. we're very much a group of people that are like, that needs to get done. Somebody better do it. And it doesn't matter who it is. And I don't care who gets like the, the glory for that, but it's going to get done. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of advocates are like that. Yeah. And then when we do get something for it, like all of us are purple ribbon awards, right? Award winners, mm-hmm. right? All of us. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. When that happens, we then just don't know what to do. Like, <laughs> I, I would like to hide under the table during oh my the award god. ceremony oh my god i got lucky that i won it in 2020 so i got the <laughs> award over zoom yep but i didn't have that luck when i won the oh sexual assault god. version the equivalent oh. uh-huh it was last year and they do they give the award out at the symposium where there's 350 people oh and my god god don't bother me i've trained at stonewall sure, so many yeah. times but when uh-huh. they were like you have to give an acceptance speech i said no i will not <laughs> So I think I was like, thanks guys. Like, I don't, it was at least 15 seconds. That's all. Um, didn't know. Yeah. So the same, like I, the, I even said to my staff on my way up there, I was joking. I was like, do you think they'd get mad if when I got up there to accept, I just started training? <laughs> like, don't do that. Cause That's I just didn't know what to say. Yes. Yeah. I didn't know what to say. It made me very uncomfortable. Well, I love um, it. I, I, and, and I think though, that at the end of the day, this just goes back to what we were talking about. We we have good people that do this work, and you have to have good people to have effective advocacy. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, it is actually impossible to do this work without um, without I think good people and the ability to be good to each other and to like mm-hmm. have each other like like we are right now. Like we're all in community together. There's fewer times that I feel more supported in my life than when I'm at a coalition membership meeting, exactly. surrounded by people who do this. Yeah. So I think holding space for us to all be together in and out of our programs, that's that's how people stay. I mean, no one will last doing this work by themselves. It's not a siloed job. You just can't do mm-hmm. it. And I think I have last, this is 12, year 12, I'm entering, or year 11. Yeah, this will be year 12. And I think for me, what's kept me is my, um, I'm, I'm personally emo inside. Like if I'm feeling any negative emotions, I, I feel those inwardly, but then like have a really, like, I'm really good at checking it with myself. So I'm like, oh, I need some, somebody to not talk to me for an hour. Like I need to just be really quiet. And, yeah. Um, so I think mm-hmm. self-regulation, but then also helping each other regulate is really important in this work. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. We usually end uh, these episodes with a directive to everybody to go out and root for each other. But I think uh-huh. it, it, that's at the foundation of what we do. But maybe we're realizing we also have to root for ourselves, mm-hmm. not to be and, too cheesy. And reflect on how you ask for and receive help. That's <laughs> your homework. <laughs> so our follow-up episode. This outro yeah. is getting <laughs> a little long. <laughs> Mm-hmm. All right, everybody. We appreciate your time, um, Katie. Uh, and as Shannon has said, um, at the end of the day, I hope you go out and root for each other, but also for yourselves. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, you can call us 24 7 at 304 529 2382. 
For more information on the dynamics and impact of abuse, check out our website at branchesdvs.org.